Hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? Ah, that sounds pretty good. Semi-convincing. It's great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, you know, I want to start off by talking about one of my favorite bands, R.E.M., um, and their 1993 hit, The One I Love. Maybe you remember the chorus? This one goes out to the one I love. This one, you know it, that's good. This one goes out to the one I left behind. Yeah, a lot of you are like, no, no, I wasn't a child of the 90s. That's okay, that's all right. But you know, a lot of people who've heard this song and liked this song, uh, they thought that the song was really about someone writing a song to somebody they loved who they'd left behind, maybe a loved one. And it's really funny because um, the reality is it's quite different. You know, Michael Stipe, uh, who, who wrote the song, said couples would come up and say, thank you so much for that song, that's our song. And he always thought, that is so weird, because he wrote that song as this brutal, brutal, harsh look at how often we use relationships in order just to get our needs met, how we use people. We just use people. In fact, one of the lines says, uh, the one I love, a simple prop to occupy my time. People can just be simple props. So, so eager to read a romantic theme into this song, listeners missed a very difficult truth which Stripe had to give us. Well, in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at one of the most well-known chapters in the Bible. Uh, it's actually the, one of the greatest, greatest written pieces on love in the English language. It's 1 Corinthians 13. You heard it this morning. It's very famous. It's the love chapter. And we love to love the love chapter. <laughs> a simple search on Amazon, and you'll see there's all kinds of things you can buy with 1 Corinthians 13 plastered on it. You can get a calendar. You can get a mug. Look at that mug. Isn't that horrible? You get a, if anyone buys me that mug, I, I'll never forgive you. You, you can get a keychain. You can get a picture frame, a t-shirt, paper towels, jewelry. And you can even get these decals so that your stairs become 1 Corinthians 13. That is so tacky. If you have that, take it down. <laughs> you know, uh, it's one of the most popular things ever written about love. Um, but in the next few weeks, um, we're going to take a closer look because according to one scholar, only one in 100 people that knows 1 Corinthians 13 actually gets the thrust of what Paul is saying. You know, in spite of her desire to read a romantic theme in there, the Apostle Paul is not waxing eloquently about the beauty of love. He is dropping bombs. The Apostle Paul is not sitting back and giving hyperbolic, sentimental poetry, but he's giving a sobering wake-up call. And when the recipients got this letter and read this section, they would not have said, oh, honey, that's so, get the calligraphy set out. That is so touching, Paul. Oh, Paul. They would have said, what? Ow! How dare he? It would have been offensive. So these next two weeks, we're going to take a closer look at 1 Corinthians 13 to see why the Corinthians would never have dreamed to put some cheesy decal on a coffee mug with what was written. And what we're going to see is though it may not reinforce our late modern neo-romanticism, it gives us something much better than that. So to begin, we're going to remember the context in which Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians. Now, Corinth was a city that was on a spit of land four miles wide. It was a great place for a city. As you can see from the map, everybody had to go through Corinth. If you're going north to south, you got to go through that little spit of land. If you're going south to north, you got to go through that little spit of land. 
If you're on a boat and you're going along, it's this little isthmus. And you can save hundreds of miles if you just simply stop on one side of the isthmus, move the goods to the other side, and get another ship. So by land or by sea, Corinth was a good place to be. But the Corinthians in 146 BC rebelled against Rome. Bad idea. So the Romans came in and they wiped Corinth off the map. They decimated it. And for a hundred years, no one lived in Corinth. Completely desolate, completely wiped out. But then Julius Caesar, who knows a good things when, when he sees it, decided he put a garrison there. And within a hundred years, Corinth became one of the largest cities in the world. It was a different kind of city because there was no aristocracy that was there before. There was no old money. It was a city where ultimately it came down to status. What kind of status could you have? That meant everything. And so everyone's vying for status. Everybody that comes to Corinth, and it's all newcomers, okay? Everybody that comes there, they're there for one thing. They want to make it. They want money. They want prestige. They're there to get the good life. On top of this, very interesting fact, above Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite, okay? And, and every night, a thousand temple prostitutes would come down off that temple, and they'd go into the city, and they'd practice their wares. And so, if you were a Corinthian, sex and love were synonymous. Hooking up was just normative. Not only that, it was seen as being spiritually authentic. So, I want to use your imagination Imagine a diverse metropolitan city where people are all about their status, where celebrityism is the order of the day, where money is what binds people together, and where people think hooking up is normative. It's being authentic. Sounds like Los Angeles, right? <laughs> okay. You know, the Corinthians valued affluence. They valued status and pleasure and all this stuff so much that they actually coined a term for the people that lived there. They were the Corinthianizers. If you were a Corinthianizer, you stood out from everybody else. Everybody knew what you were about. You were worldly with a capital W. And it's into this town, into this city, this metropolis, that the Apostle Paul comes. Acts chapter 18 tells us that he was there for a year and a half. And in that year and a half, God did amazing things among the Corinthianizers. God did amazing things, and a lot of people came to believe, and a church was planted, and there was all these new baby Christians these baby Corinthian Christians. A few years later, after Paul's left, he got word from Chloe, from Chloe's household. My daughter's named Chloe. I wanted a, a, a narc for Jesus, someone that would just tattle on people for God's glory. <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, so Paul gets this report from Chloe. You guys are pretty serious this morning. All right, we lighten it up. But man, I don't know how the humor is going to go, Justin. All right, pray for me. Um, anyways, he gets this, this report from Chloe's household. And things are going well. See, these baby Christians were still acting like babies. Temperamental, irritable, easily offended. And so Paul sits back and he goes, what's going on? And he realizes the Corinthian culture has infested the church. That self-centeredness, that status-seeking, that desire for things all about me. See, all that had flooded into the church. And as a result, things were a mess. People were having illicit sex, and no one was saying anything. Everyone knew it was going on. See, there was divisions. There was quarreling. People were rude to one another. We, we've been looking at this, right? We've been doing this study. We saw that in the Lord's Supper, people would get together, and they would hog out on all the good food, and some people were going hungry. 
We saw people were coming into the congregation, and they were dressing in modestly. They're like, I'm free in Jesus. I could come here dressed like this. I don't care. People were rude to one another. It was a mess. And above all, people were so status-hungry that they were trying to look super spiritual. And in the midst of this situation, we come to 1 Corinthians 13, and the Apostle Paul is going to say this to the Corinthians, it's time for you to grow up. You need to understand what maturity looks like. And so this morning, we're going to look at how Paul drives home this point. He says, first and foremost, if you want to know what matters above and beyond for your maturity, it's this. You need to be a people who are marked by love. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at how Paul drives home to the Corinthians the absolute importance of love. And he does this in two movements. It's a two-point sermon, all right? Don't get lost. Don't get confused. Those of you who are used to three-point sermons, it's only two. Justin's doing the slides. It's only two, Justin, okay? You're going to be okay. Here's his two points. Number one, the absolute necessity of love, that love is irreplaceable. That's the first thing Paul wants to drive home. He's going to do that in the first three verses. And then in verses four to seven, Paul hones in on what exactly is love. What does love look like? So the necessity of love and the essence of love. That's where we're going this morning. Let's start off with the necessity of love, verses 1 to 3. Paul says in verses 1 to 3 this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, as we said, the Corinthians were locked into this status-seeking, competitive uh, attempt to look so spiritual kind of thing. And so, in the first three verses, Paul gives three hypothetical case studies showing having even the most spectacular gifts, even being the most impressive having just these incredible gifts, if, it's not, if these gifts are not used to love people, they are worthless. He does it in three, step, three things, three case studies. First, he deals with what the Corinthians really valued. Then he talks about the gifts that he values. And finally, he talks about the gifts that the world values, the gifts the Corinthians valued. Paul begins with what impressed the Corinthians the most, tongues. Now, tongues are these ecstatic uh, uh, non-propositional sounds that were made, and he talks about them being the tongues of men and of angels. So the tongues of men would be yearnings that, that rise up from inside, praises that rise up from inside, which that really can't be contained within words. And so people would have these ecstatic utterances. And then he even goes farther to talk about the tongues of angels, and this would be the angelic language. I actually don't know what language the, the angels speak, and I don't think the Apostle Paul is endorsing these necessarily. He's giving us a hypothetical. It, Paul may or may not have believed in angelic tongues. But the point is this. Paul says that even though someone might seem very spiritual in their language, they might have this kind of, you might see them think like, wow, what a spiritual person. If what's coming out of their mouth is not directed in the direction of love, it's actually a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In fact, you can use spiritual language to draw a lot of attention to yourself. And when that's the case, when that's the case, Paul says, what's coming out of your mouth 
is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's, it's the, actually, it's the, I'll get this right, the, uh, it is the continuous present participle. It gets this idea of this endlessly going kind of, you know, we all love those kind of sounds, don't we? <laughs> drip, 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 drip. You know, I, I used to live across the street from Cal State Long Beach, and I mean, I could hear when things were going on at the Blue Pyramid, and one semester, there was somebody who thought they just needed to drum. They needed to drum, they needed to practice their drum, the world needed to hear them drum. And it was like every afternoon, I knew Drummer Boy was gonna be out there with his drum, and it was like, you're not making any coherent noise. It's the same beat over and over and over and over for like an hour. Please make it stop. <laughs> it's easy. It's easy to do things that look very spiritual. But Paul says, if there's no love, please make it stop. Then he goes on, and he talks about the gifts that Paul values. In 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to see when Pastor Josh gets back from vacation and takes us in there, that Paul valued prophecy. He valued teaching and instruction that would edify the church. And he says, give me one word of edification rather than a thousand words in some incoherent language. Um, so then he goes into this, these things that he valued. And if I have prophetic gifts and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So Paul here talks about these these different things, prophetic powers and mysteries and knowledge and faith. And he says, if you know scriptures so well that you can apply it to any situation, that's the prophetic power. You can show scriptures relevance. He says that if you actually had insight into things that no one else had insight into because God and his grace had given you insight into his mind and his will and what he was doing, things beyond human access, and if you had encyclopedic knowledge, and I don't know if you're like this, but sometimes I think to myself, like, how cool would it be to have an encyclopedic knowledge? Like, someone just asks you a question. You don't even need to ask, you know, um, Alexa. You just, you know, you just know it. Or, or, you know, sometimes I think, like, how cool would it be if I spoke, like, 20 languages? Sometimes I fantasize, like, if I spoke 20 languages, which ones would they be? I'm weird like that. I just, I'm, I'm, I don't know what my personality is, but I value knowledge. It's just, it's intrinsically good. My sister thinks I'm crazy. But anyways, if you had all knowledge, you were walking encyclopedia, you could, you could just whip people in arguments. I mean, you talk about being an apologist for Jesus, you just crush people with the facts. And then, if you had faith to move mountains, if you're one of those people that when everyone else is like, we don't know, we don't know, you can see beyond insurmountable odds and you can boldly claim things. Paul says, if you can do all those things, you're this brainiac with this insight and this ability to imagine and ask for things. Paul says, if you have all of those things, you might think you're a somebody, but you're a nobody. You might have two PhDs. If you are not using those for the love of God, you are a nobody. You're a nobody. That's what God says. So, you know, we have a lot of people here that are professionals. Think right now about what your profession is. Think about the things that you kind of pride yourself in. Paul says, if that's not being used to love others, that makes you a nobody. Wow. Man, if you're not already stinging, let's just keep going here. Finally, he talks about the gifts the world values. If I give away all I have, I deliver my body up to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. You know, who is it that we respect? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or non-Christian, you think Mother Teresa. Or you think about people that are willing to give a tremendous amount, you know, 
to whatever charity. You know, we live in a culture that really affirms giving, and that's a good thing, you know, but it's easy to post. Post, you know, I'm doing a, a walk for a cerebral policy, or I'm, you know, picking apples in order to, you know, fill the food pantry. And Paul says this, he says that it's easy for us to think that if we're doing good things that God is impressed. But God can see, and God knows why we're giving. I've caught myself, have you caught yourself? Wanting to post that thing that you're doing so well on social media because you know other people are going to see it and you lose your reward. So Paul is saying that if we give away everything we have and deliver up my body, this is the idea that you sell your body into slavery to get even more money to give away. And then it says to be burned. You know, the, the Greek's interesting here because it actually can be translated to be gloried, to be gloried. Some people take that. And so if you do all these things, but you do it for your own glory, if you do it really ultimately not to love people and to love God, Paul says, I gain nothing. So powerful stuff, right? Convicting stuff, right? Our life counts for nothing without love. In all three case studies, the action is done for the self. The tongues are done to edify the self. The knowledge, not controlled by love, ministers only to the self. And even great acts of charity without love can merely serve to draw attention to self. And this is why Paul says, but if I have not love, I am nothing. Literally, if I don't have love, my life counts for nothing. And we just need to sit with that for a second because that is sobering. How does God assess our lives? How does God assess our church? How does God assess? I know when you look back in your life, you think of everything you've done, what does God see? How does God assess spiritual maturity? How does God think about our Bible knowledge? How does God think about the things that we're doing, attending church? How does God think about the money we've given away? How does God think about all the things we've done? What is God looking for? When God looks at our lives, there's only one measure he uses. It's the measure of love. God's definition of what matters is pretty straightforward. He measures our lives by our love for him and our love for people. Paul is saying that nothing we do in this life matters unless it is about loving God and loving the people he made. And you know, this is not new. Paul is just simply restating what Jesus said. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors yourself. And then he said, and on these, on these two things, everything depends. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul says, each man's work will be tested with fire. And so the question is, what is the test going to show? And this is what I believe it's going to show. When our lives are completely, uh, basically seen for what they're worth, what will remain is love. The acts we did out of love, the things we did out of love, the things we did love for God and love for others, that is the measure of our lives. And this raises an urgent question. If our lives boil down to love, what is love? And this is verses four to seven, the essence of love. And here Paul goes into this account of love. Love is patient and kind. 
Love is not envy or boast. It's not arrogance. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in catching people in wrongdoing, but rejoices when they are in the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Don't read this as a list of adjectives. These are all verbs. Love is a verb. Love is action. Now, something really cool is going on here. I don't know if can you see it up there. There's actually three little kind of things going on here. First, Paul talks positively. Love is patient and kind. And then he has a list of seven negative things love is not. And then he ends with these four ponta. Ponta in Greek means all things, these four all things. And so let's take a look at these three, the threefold description of love that Paul gives. And first, Paul starts off by telling us that love waits patiently and love shows kindness. Love waits patiently and love shows kindness. Now, one of these is a passive action and one is active. The first movement is love waits patiently. The word there is long-suffering. The word there is, is, is not, is forbearing. It's not acting out. So this is a passive thing. And then there's an active movement of love. Love is kind. This means gift-giving, moving towards the other, and, and, and seeking their welfare and giving to them. And I call this the jujitsu move of love. I, I never took jiu-jitsu, okay, so I might be wrong. If you're a jiu-jitsu expert, I'm sorry. But, but when I think of jiu-jitsu, I think that there's kind of like, you know, someone like throws a punch to get you. And, and from what I understand from jiu-jitsu, you simply don't receive that negative impact. You just simply don't receive it, but then you give your own response. And this is the fundamental thing when Paul pairs these two together. Love is patient and kind. It is the jujitsu act. As it says in Romans 12:1, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You step aside, you don't act out, someone's coming at you, someone's doing something bad, someone's getting in your face, someone's all up in your grill, you step aside, you forbear. It's that person at church that bugs, they're coming your way. They want to sit there and talk to you. You only have a few minutes. It's your moment to eat your donut, enjoy your coffee. You step away, you forbear. And then what do you do? You give. It's the one-two of love. You guys see it? So, who is the person that you need to pull the jujitsu act of love on? Who do you need to forbear with and then move towards them with kindness? We all have one, right? Take a minute. You, know, you probably already know who that person is. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you're sitting next to them. Maybe, maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a neighbor who's not very neighborly. Maybe it's that grumpy customer that comes in all the time. Maybe it's someone who's working underneath you. Maybe it's someone in your company. Love calls us to forbear and then move towards them. What are you going to do this week to move towards them? From here, Paul goes into seven negative actions, what love does not do. Um, Paul says it doesn't burn with envy. It doesn't brag. It's not inflated with self-importance. It's not ill-mannered. It's not preoccupied with self-interest. It's not irritable, resentful. It doesn't keep a list of fences. It doesn't enjoy catching people, but joyfully celebrates the truth. Now, as you can see from up here, Paul is not just making this stuff up. 
Paul is going down the report card of the Corinthian church and saying, fail, 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 fail. This is why they would never have that on a mug. Who puts their big F report card on a mug? I failed in all seven subjects of love this year. <laughs> you know, Paul just goes right down the list. Does not burn with envy. 3-3, three, three. you are envious of one another. It doesn't brag. You claim to be wise. You claim to have knowledge. You claim to be spiritual. You're just so-so, aren't you? It's not inflated with self-importance. You are proud of yourselves. The word there is puffed up. It's not ill-mannered or rude. We talked about this, where the Lord's Supper, they were just being rude to some people. People were coming into the congregation and dressing in a way that didn't show respect towards other people. They're being immodest. It's not preoccupied with self-interest. Paul says in 10.24, don't think only of your own good. In 10.31, I don't just do what I like. Think of other people. It's not irritable, resentful, doesn't keep a list of offenses, doesn't enjoy catching people doing wrong. If you're one of those people that enjoys catching people doing wrong, look, look, some of you, some of you have a great gift. You have this critical capacity. You can walk in, you can go, that needs fixed. Hey, if that is you, I just want to say, we need that gift. But because that is your gift, you're going to have to work overtime, okay? Because you need to sandwich that, right, with praise on the top end and on the back end, right? So if that's your gift of, of seeing things that are out of place, you need to sandwich that, right? But he says, does not rejoice with uh, finding those who are doing wrongdoing, but rejoices and celebrates the truth, looking for something good. Man, what if we were a congregation that was constantly looking for something good, looking for where people are living in the truth? Man, you are living in the truth today. Man, you are doing what's right. Hey, I just want to say I notice the way that you're responding to your friend. I notice the way you've done this. I just want to point that out. Have you ever been around somebody that does that? They catch you doing good? That is what love looks like. So Paul goes through and he gives the Corinthians their report card and they're failing. And these, by the way, I mean, it's again, like this is just a... This is just a giant examination here. There's so much. You can just sit and pray through these things. God, am I envious? Am I bragging? Am I rude, right? And then finally, Paul moves in to these four pontas, these four pontas, all things. Four times Paul uses the Greek word ponta, which means all things, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And something really cool is going on here. Love bears all things and endures all things. Those line up. And then believes and hopes, okay? So at the end, Paul's going to say faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these in love. So you have faith, believes all things, and hope, hopes all things. Those are sandwiched in the front end and the back end by this idea of preserving while pouring ourselves out towards another. And so love comes before and after faith and hope. It is the chief virtue, right? And Paul here gives us these all things. Now, there's something really interesting is that many people think that this kind of all thingsness, that love can bear all things and hopes all things, is exactly what's wrong with Christianity. In the history of thought, people have thought Paul's view of love is exactly what's wrong with the world. Feuerbach said that religion gives in to debilitating wishes, that one can be passive against difficulties bears all things, and naively hope for the best, believes all things. And that just simply makes us debilitated. Nietzsche uh, says Paul presents a uh, moral, a slave morality, making people too weak to fight for what they really wanted. So Christianity produces this kind of herd mentality 
where we just simply all come together and we just put up with everything and we just believe everything. Nietzsche writes, Paul's notion of love has sided with everything weak, low, botched. It's made an ideal out of antagonism towards strong life. You know, we could go on. Marx follows suit and talks about Christianity being the opium of the people. Freud says Paul is giving us a wishful thinking, believing all things, so we can cope to endure all things. More recently, Foucault talks about Paul valorizing docility. See, it's, it's popular to pick on Paul because we're reading this list of pontas, the all things, we're reading it as an inclusivity. Love just takes everything on. You're just that codependent person that just is helping everybody and you have no boundaries and sure, I'll believe that, whatever. We're, we couldn't be farther off from what Paul is saying. Paul is not giving us a logic of inclusivity. Paul is giving us a logic of exclusivity. Let me put it on the bottom shelf. Paul is saying the agape alone in this world is a power that has no limits. It's profound. Next, I can hardly wait to preach next week's sermon. If you don't like this one, come back next week. It'll be better. <laughs> next week, we're going to take a look at, uh, at what Paul says in the next verses. And Paul says that heaven is a place marked above and beyond by radical love. It's going to be profound. But Paul right here is beginning to get into that, and he's saying that agape alone has no limits. So I like this translation. Love never tires of support. Love never loses faith. Love never exhausts hope. Love never gives up. Far from debilitating, Paul is saying that love is an unstoppable force. Far, far from making us weaklings, Paul is saying if you tap into the love of God, your life is going to have power. You're going to have direction. You're going to be moving. You're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And no matter what comes in your way, if you have the love of God in your heart, nothing can stop you. If you know the love of God that's been poured out for you, your life will become powerful. In order to really understand what Paul's getting at here, it's really good to understand what he's doing with the Greek. And, you know, we don't like to pull out the Greek all the time, but... Um, there's a little word here that's used over and over again, and the word is agape. And agape is a distinctly Christian Greek word. It existed before Christianity came along, but Christianity realized that they needed to disabuse love from being simply uh, eros or simply the idea of friendship or simply the idea of what you like in terms of comfortableness, like I like a nice warm cup of coffee. And they said, we need to talk about love in a radically different way. Go back one, Justin. Thank you. Not done with agape yet. Isn't that nice? I can just call that out. That's pretty cool. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> um, and so what they did is they intentionally used agape. And so agape is rare in Greek literature outside of the New Testament. But Christians usually use it intentionally to disengage love from pagan ideas. As the scholar Nigran says, agape comes to us as a quite new creation of Christianity. Now, now the next slide. Thanks, Justin. These were, there were some options, right? Okay. Uh, storge, or affection, or familial love. Okay, that's one of them. That's the, that is in the top left for you, okay? This is the instinctual love for the familial, all right? A nice t-shirt. You know, the feeling when you come to home, to your own space. The feeling of being around family, if you haven't seen them for a while. You know, after a little while, it wears off. But if you haven't seen them for a while, right? That which is comfortable, right? Okay, that which is native to the self, that which is recognizable. But it's not only the comforts we find embodied, it's also things like the comfort of seeing someone 
who is the same race or sex or gender or class. See, that's all part of storge. There's a natural familiarity with that which is known. Then there's philia, our friendship, and the heart of friendship is a solidarity based on shared interests, a similar pursuit. This is um, the love of commonality that you share interests with somebody else, whether it's an interest in some kind of hobby or philosophy or value. And then there's eros, romantic love. At the heart of romantic love is a desire to have the one that is loved. You know, think about Cupid. Cupid's a little nymph. He's got bow and arrow. What's Cupid doing? Cupid is on the hunt. Don't be fooled. Cupid wants to acquire. He wants the object of his desires. This is romantic love, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with these loves. There's nothing wrong with them, you know? The Bible tells us that God created families, and the book of Proverbs tells us friendship is a great boon. And there's a whole book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, which is all about romantic love. There's nothing wrong with these loves, but here's the thing. These loves are natural. They just come with being a part of this world. They're natural. And, and the other thing about these loves is that ultimately they're about the self. They're about the self. Getting one's comforts met, having one's interests shared, having one's desires acquired. These kinds of loves keep the self as the reference point. And so agape was introduced as a radically different kind of love, an other-centered love. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. David Kelsey calls this kind of love a life of eccentric existence. What does that mean? When you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that your hair gets all crazy and you start, you know, different kinds of socks. And you know. No, eccentric means simply that you change the center. And to be a Christian is to move the center, the axis of the center outside of the self and towards the other person. In fact, the center now becomes between you two as you love your neighbor as yourself. This is, you guys, we would have to make up Christianity if it didn't exist, because this stuff is beautiful. It's just beautiful, right? And so this is what agape is about. Romans 5.5 5 says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Agape is a kind of consciousness that God's Spirit brings, and it shows itself in acts of regard, in acts of respect, in acts of concern for the other. Agape is clearly seen, most clearly seen, when we are moving towards someone who is very different from us. Someone where we have none of those natural loves attached, and we move towards them for their welfare, for their regard. Agape takes us beyond the boundary of natural solidarities. And the best example is the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? The Samaritan sees a despised race, a despised religion, someone he, would, he should be passing by. And what does he do? He moves towards that person with love. He moves towards that wounded person and takes care and gives sacrificially. This is what agape is all about. Agape is where we move to those who are foreign, those who are not like us, those who have, we have no natural desires to love. And you know what is a great little exercise if you want to enter into agape? Every time you meet somebody, the more they are unlike you, try to move more strongly towards them. Because then you become people marked by agape. 
So let's bring the horses in the stable. Where does Paul get these, this idea from? Where does Paul get this idea, this jujitsu of love, this forbearing and then moving towards the other person? The kind of love that's long-suffering and kind, the kind of love that returns a blessing for a curse, the kind of love that even loves its enemies. There's only one person in history. There's only one place in history where love like this was displayed in all of its jaw-dropping brilliance. See, Christianity says that God, who is radically other than his creation, if there, there's not a, a greater distance to travel than between the creator and the creation, there's not a greater distance, that God came down close to his creation, close to us. He took on flesh and blood. And then we hurled everything at God. And what does God do? God, in this grand jujitsu move, forbears and suffers, and then turns around and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is love. This is the love that if we are going to be people of love, we have to enter deeply into. You know, at the end of a message like this, you can sit there and go like, wow, I suck at loving. My life, oh, wow, it's not going to be good on Judgment Day. I don't even know if I'm going to even have like a little tiny, you know, nothing left. You know, it, that's how I felt this week. I'm looking at this, I'm going, wow, Lord, how much of my life is marked by love, like moving towards other people? You know, the answer is not guilt, where you sit around and beat yourself up. The answer is to go to the cross and there see that God, even in our failings in love, still loves us. And as that drives home, then we are moving out. And this week say, Lord, by your spirit, make me a person that's marked by the same love that you have for me.